0: We are in middle of our analysis of the sources with respect to the question of trying to understand why bad things happen to good people, why the Almighty allows for the righteous to have a difficult time. And when we kind of constructed the question, we broke it down to three assumptions. Assumption number one, which is the second principle of the Ramams 13, That assumes that God maintains total control over everything that occurs. Nothing can happen outside of his desire, against his will. He supervises human on an individual level, and therefore nothing can transpire upon humans against his will. That's the first assumption. The second assumption is that God is good. God is just. God is benevolent. God is fair. The last assumption is that in our world, we get to experience things that are unfair, that are unjust, that are unkind, and that creates a problem. If God is good and God is in total control, how does bad things happen? That's the construct of this dilemma of this question. Now, it's important to stress, and we touched upon this briefly last time, that the same question applies not only when bad things happen to good people, but when good things happen to bad people, because the assumption should be, if God's fair, that everyone should be treated in accordance to how they are, good people should be treated well. Bad people should be treated poorly. And then when we see the opposite occurring, it arouses questions. Now, we mentioned last time that according to Jewish philosophy, there's really only one way to, res- to reconcile this question. If someone claims that God is not in total control, things can happen against his will, outside of the framework or outside of the allowances of free will, then that contradicts our definition of God. Moreover, there are many sources that reinforce the position that God is good, God is just, God is fair, God is kind. Consequently, the only way for us to legitimately reconcile our dilemma from a perspective of Jewish philosophy, is if we understand that everything that happens is really good. Sometimes we can't see it, but always it's really good. And we spoke about last time how we have to acknowledge that our intellect and our purview is very small, it's very narrow. The amount of human history, the amount of human experience that we ourselves are privy to, it's the tiniest of slivers. And... Consequently, it's very hard for us to say we know what's good, what's bad, because how can we know when we know so little? But then again, given that the sources do dwell upon this question, and it's really, it's really relevant to the juncture that we're currently holding on with respect to the, the 13 principles of faith, it's important for us to try to understand what the solutions are, what the various angles of, of this answer are from a Jewish Perspective perspective of Jewish literature. So like we mentioned last time, the true answer is that we cannot experience enough to know why everything is good when it looks bad to us. That's a true answer. It's a frustrating answer because we have to acknowledge our own limitations and no one likes to do that. But it is legitimate for someone to say, listen, I don't know. I trust the Almighty. He's got to figure it out. I'm not going to try to do too much research. on I mean, That's a very legitimate attitude. And in fact, we quoted some sources last time. There's other sources. For example, in chapter 4 of Pirkei Avos, we read the following Mishnah. We can't really understand not from the tranquility of the wicked nor from the suffering of the righteous. That said, last time we proposed one angle or one option to understand this phenomena and today we're going to propose two more options but the underlying basis of them all is that when you think something is bad, really it is good, you just don't know it. Sometimes, post facto, you're shown why it was good. Like Rabbi Akiva, when his candle went out when his donkey was killed, when his rooster was killed, the next day he found out why it was good. But more often than not, you won't find it out till much later, maybe never you'll find it in this life, maybe you'll find it out after your soul is given a more wider picture of, of, of your experience. But what I wanted to do, just to kind of conclude that idea, I want to give some examples from, from Tanakh, from Jewish history, where this was in fact revealed Something that appeared to be bad, it was shown to be good subsequently. So, for example, in chapter five of Genesis, we read about the generations from, from Adam to Noah. And it lists the people and how long they lived. This one lived 900 in this amount of years. This one lived 900 in that amount of years. And this one lived 900, 800, or died young. And then we read about Hanoch, Enoch. He died at the age of 360 something. Very young, comparatively. And the verse tells us that Hanoch, that Enoch, he walked in the ways of God, but he's no longer because God took him. It kind of departs from the usual form. The usual form is he lived this amount of years and he had this child and he lived that many of years and he died and we move on to the next generation. It kind of goes off script and gives us some commentary about, about Enoch. So Rashi tells us, why did he die so young? So if you and I, we see someone dying young, we say it's a tragedy. And we may say, oh, how did God allow that to happen? And here we see some of the first person in history that is documented to have died young by natural causes, Cain enables a different story, is Enoch, is Hanoch. And Rashi tells us that Hanoch was a righteous man, but he was somewhat wavering. He was on the precipice of being nudged towards becoming a wicked person. Therefore, and Rashi quoting from our sages, therefore, the Almighty expedited his death to kill him, to have him die at a comparatively young age, and that ensured that he would not be allowed to fall into the wicked ways and ruin himself for eternity. So when we witness Hanuk dying young, our sages tell us, well, actually, it seems like it's a curse. It really is a blessing. That's one example. Again, Rashi brings that in the commentary on Torah based upon our sages in the Midrash. A second example is Noah. So if you look at Noah's peers, they're all having children at a very young age, comparatively. Noah's first child is born at the age of 500. And the question is asked, how come all of his contemporaries that are having children at the sprightly age of 100 And Noah, he's got to wait till 500. It seems very unusual in in comparison to his contemporaries. So again, Rashi tells us from our sages an answer. It says that the Almighty reasoned that if Noah has children, there's only two options. Will they be righteous? Will they be wicked? If they're wicked, then Noah doesn't have to suffer upon witnessing the death of his children they're going to die with the rest of the generation. They're not going to be saved in the ark. If they're going to be righteous, so suppose Noah began his fertility at the age of a 100. By the time the ark is built at the age of 600, he might have had hundreds of kids, right? It's possible. If he has a kid every year, it could be hundreds. How many arks is he going to have to build? He'll have to, he, might have to, he might have a fleet of arks. And won't that be difficult for him as well? And therefore, either way, if Noah has... Fertility at the normal age, it's going to be difficult for him. If they're righteous, then he's going to have to build who knows how many arts. If they're wicked, then have to die. And therefore, God says, "I'm going to withhold fertility till later." Again, something which appears to be a curse. Noah's the only one. He's 408 years old, and he's the only one who has no children. He's infertile. But again, our sages revealed to us actually it's a blessing. You may think it's a curse; it's a blessing. Another example: Abraham died young, at the young age of 175. He was supposed to live to 180. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all slated to live to live 180 years. Abraham died at 175. Isaac died at 180, and Jacob died at 147. So Abraham lost five years, and Jacob lost 33 years. So why did Jacob lose 33 years is a question for a different day. But why did Abraham die five years early? So Rashi tells us that the day that Esau of the grandson of Abraham, the day that he went off, he started sinning in terrible ways, was the day that Abraham died. Because God promised him you're going to die in a good old age. And if your grandson starts behaving like a terrible person, like a wicked person, how could he die peaceably? And therefore, again, another example, Abraham dies young, comparatively, and it's viewed maybe by us as a bad thing, Torah says, I'll reveal to you why it's really a good thing. Classic example. Joseph is sold to Egypt by his own brothers. Terrible, terrible. And a series of success, a succession of bad things happened to him. Terrible, terrible. But all post fact that we're able to piece them together, this is his ascent to monarchy. He thinks he's being sold as a slave. Really, he's being prepared to be a king over the most powerful country in the world. The Talmud points out that the exile, the Babylonian exile, Happen in two stages. There was the initial exile, and then there was the final exile. The initial exile, the leaders of the Jewish people were sent to Babylon. Ten years later, the rest of the populace was sent to Babylon as well. If you're living in a society, you've been there for 800 some odd years, and all the businessmen, all the titans of industry... All the great rabbis, all the scholars, all the military leaders, all of them are taken away. You may feel like your country, like your people, like your nation has been decimated of its people of ability. But the truth is that the Almighty knew that the nation was heading to Babylon. And therefore he sent the movers and shakers there to prepare the society, to prepare the community, to lay the groundwork for the masses to arrive. Again, the Talmud points us out, that this appeared at the time to be a curse, ultimately proved to be a miracle. And there are many other examples. But this is the first, I would say, the first realm of understanding is that, yes, it's good. And you know what? If we work hard, sometimes we'll be able to see why it is good. There's another angle, another option, another perspective of us trying to understand how bad things happening to us, bad things that are, so to speak, at the hand of God. They're happening to us. They're bad, but really, they're good. And this idea is presented, again, in a variety of ways. The Ramchal, Moshe Chaim Musato, is one of the foremost sources in Jewish philosophy. In his book on Jewish philosophy, called Derech Hashem, the way of God, he tells us that sometimes the Almighty punishes us, the Almighty causes us to have suffering, not as a means of atonement, Not as, oh, it's secretly good, you just don't know it. You'll find out at some later date why it was objectively good. But rather, as a means to awaken our heart to repent. When someone goes off the rails, they sometimes need to be elbowed back onto the right track. And when they're off the rails and some sort of, event happens to them. They say, oh, God's punishing me. But in reality, God is sending you a message, rectify your ways, get back on track, you're going awry, get your affairs in order, correct your ways. And again, this is another example. It's really good in the big picture. Yes, in the small picture, it's bad, but the objective is to hopefully nudge to aid to massage someone back onto the proper path. So for example, the Talmud in the book of Brachos on page 5a tells us if someone sees that they're suffering, what should they do? Says the Talmud, You should examine, you should probe your deeds. And it quotes the famous verse in book of Lamentation Let's examine our ways. V'nachkor, let's really focus on them. Where do they need to be fixed? V'nashuvah HaShem, well, let's return to God. So again, we take suffering as messages from God that we need to fix whatever area that we're lacking that we're not perfect in. And in fact, the custom of of our people in our history is when something bad to say, okay, what message is God sending me? How do I internalize the message? and move back on track, repent, correct my ways, and take the message home. That's what the Talmud advises us. And if someone inspects their ways, and they don't find the problem, well, what then? What's the message now? Says the Talmud, well, it means probably you're not studying enough Torah. Because almost everyone is lacking in that. Almost everyone takes some time off to do other stuff. We got to check the game. You know, the Texans are playing on Sunday, right? You have to, you have to make. There's other stuff you got to do. You got to be involved in politics. We have to be an informed citizen, after all. There's things that you know, this is my show. I need to watch. I can't miss the next the next episode. There's all the every one of us, so to speak. We have we have the areas that we need to sharpen our commitment to Torah study, and therefore, if we can find the exact area, there's one area that's. A catch-all. That will probably cover most people. What if you're someone who is so on top of your game, there's no part of your life that's not dedicated to Torah? What then? Your actions are impeccable. Your Torah study is continuous, is lacking nothing. What then? How do you make sense of the suffering that you have to endure because of God? Then, says the Talmud, you should attribute it towards yisurim Shel ahava, suffering of love. Sometimes the Almighty punishes you, the Almighty makes you suffer because He loves you. Why pray tell would God, because He loves us, cause us to suffer? That is the subject of the next perspective. But again, circling back to the beginning, we said that it's really good either because you'll reveal why it really is good, you thought it was bad, it was really good, or it's bad, but the big picture, it's good because it's going to help you go back to the proper path. It's a it's a wake-up call from God. So for example, we read recently in Leviticus, the mitzvah of Shemitah, meaning you let your land lie fallow for a year, for the seventh year. What happens if you don't do that? So the whole Parsha, Parsha's Bahar, it's all about the consequences of allowing uh, – of, of someone not fulfilling their obligation of keeping the field unattended to on the Shemitah. And Rashi tells us in chapter 26, verse 1 of Leviticus, if someone does not obey the laws of the the Almighty will punish them by forcing them to sell their movable product, property, their movable items. And if they don't do that, then – they'll have to sell their real property. And if they don't repent, they'll have to sell their home. And if they don't repent, they'll have to borrow with interest. And if they don't repent, they'll have to sell themselves as a slave. And initially to a Jew, and then eventually to a non-Jew who doesn't have the same rules governing how to treat slaves. Again, a series, a succession of bad things will happen to you. Again, get the message. If you don't get the message, up the ante. You don't get the message, up the ante, etc., etc. The suffering is a message from God Rectify your ways. Another example of this is with respect to mourning. There's a mitzvah for us to mourn the passing of our relatives. The Sefer Chinuch, which is a medieval book that dedicates itself to understanding, to listing and understanding the rationale for the mitzvahs. He tells us what's the meaning behind mourning over the demise of of close relatives, the rationale is to figure out what message God's sending to me. When something bad happens to me, what message? What can I internalize? What lesson can I learn? How do I improve my ways? How do I take the lesson home? There's a story about a uh, an individual who had an office on the 80th floor of the Empire State Building. And one day, he went out for a cigarette to his balcony. But Rabbi, there's no balconies. Okay. This is a story. This is a story about the other Empire State building that did have balconies. And it's late in the day and the office is already empty and he tries to get back in after a cigarette and the door's locked. And his phone is inside. So he's stuck. And he has no option. He has to get the attention of the passerby. A thousand feet below. So the only thing he has with him is his wallet, and he's got some spare change, and he's got some money with him. So he says, "Ah, I have an idea. I'm going to start throwing down some money, and the passerby will look up to see where the money's coming from, and they'll see me on the, on on the balcony, and they'll save me." So he starts throwing down some change, and everyone picks up the change. And, the, and they just walk off. So he says, Oh, I have to give him more, I have to give him more money. So he pulls out dollar bills and he's dropping twenties and fifties and hundreds and everyone's just scooping it up and walking away. So he's like, I have to come up with a different solution. He goes to the potted plant and takes out some pebbles and takes a, a fistful of pebbles and throws them down, rains them down on the passerby below. And when pebbles start raining down below, they say, Hey, what's up with that? And they look up and they save them. That's the, of course, it's not a real story, but that's the lesson. The Almighty wants our attention. And the Almighty showers us with all kinds of goodies. And we just stoop it up and never say thank you. and never acknowledge him. We just go about our day. And it's so critical for us to maintain that connection that the Almighty says, you know what? I'm even going to throw some curveballs into their lives, give them some challenges. And when someone has a challenge, they say, why did God do that to me? So it's almost the, almost the invariable response. What's the meaning behind that? They have a crisis of faith. That crisis of faith is actually an act of faith because they're grappling with it. Okay. That's the message. And we can avoid having the proverbial pebbles being rained upon us by making sure that we maintain the connection with God when things are good and that way he won't need to get our attention by causing things to get bad. But that's the second perspective that our sages share with us. The reason why bad things happen to us, that's a wake-up call from God. Finally, maybe this is the most difficult, but also the most powerful of the perspectives that our sages share with us as to why bad things happen to good people, and that is, that the reason why God punishes the righteous here in this world is to preserve their reward in Olam Abba in the afterlife. Meaning, if someone has a sin, that needs to be cleansed one way or the other. If it's cleansed here, it doesn't need to be cleansed there. If it is ignored here, it cannot be ignored there. And therefore, it's actually to someone's benefit to do away, to cleanse the sin here when it's easier to do than to do it there when it's much more difficult to do. That's a, a theme found in many places in the Talmud. So for example, in the aforementioned Talmudic teaching in Brachos 5a, Rashi explains, what does it mean, suffering of love? What does that mean, suffering of love? Says Rashi, suffering of love means the Almighty is punishing you in this world in order to increase your reward in the next world. That's, again, the same theme. But specifically in the Talmud in Brachos 7a, so two pages later, we read about a very interesting dialogue between Moses and God. The verse tells us in Exodus chapter 33, Moses makes a request from God. Inform me, please, of your ways. Moses wants to be informed of the ways of God. This is in the aftermath of the Golden Calf episode. And there's a very dramatic dialogue between Moses and God. Moses ends up in a cleft in the rock and God passes by. It's a very hard thing to understand. You read it simply, it doesn't make any sense. But Moses asks to be informed of God's ways. What is he really asking for? So it says in the Talmud, this is his question. Moses said before him, this is the, the content of what Moshe really wants to know. Why is there a righteous person and it is good for him? and there is a righteous person and it is bad for him there is a wicked person and it is good for him and there is a wicked person and there and it is bad for him moses is asking there seems to be inconsistency in how the almighty treats people in this world some righteous people everything's good for them other righteous people everything's bad for them some wicked people things are good for them and some wicked people things are bad for them there seems to be no rhyme or reason between how the almighty treats people it seems like it's indiscriminate about their behavior that's how they get treated so they might have responded with an answer now parenthetically I want to point out that last time we spoke about the death of Rabbi Akiva and Moses gets to witness it and he asks God incredulously Zu schor, this is Torah this is reward what does God tell him God says Stoke, silence You don't understand it. And here, Moses seems to be asking a very similar question. Part of the four things that Moses wants to know is why a righteous person and bad things happen to them. And God gives him a very different answer. But God doesn't say, ah, be quiet. You don't understand. God seems to address it in a legitimate way, which is an interesting point Hold that on the side. But what does God respond There's four situations, good people, some good people, good things happen to them, some good people, bad things happen to them, bad people, wicked people, some wicked people, good things happen to them, some wicked people, bad things happen to them. These four realities, I'll explain to you, says God. A righteous person that is good for him, that's a completely righteous person. Totally righteous. There's no problem with that person. A righteous person, it's bad for him, it's a righteous person. But he's only partially righteous, not completely righteous. A wicked person, it's good for him. That's only a partially wicked person. He's not completely wicked. Whereas a wicked person and bad things happen to them, that's a completely wicked person. You said there's four situations, but you don't realize there's four kinds of people. It's not just a wicked person, a righteous person. There's two kinds of wicked people. There's two kinds of righteous people. It's a completely wicked person, a completely, uh, righteous person, a completely A partially wicked person and a partially righteous person. There's more nuance, basically. And therefore, everyone is treated fairly because the completely righteous person, good things happen to them. A completely wicked person, bad things happen to them. Then people who are partially righteous and people partially wicked. If someone is righteous but only partially, bad things will happen to them. If someone is wicked but only partially wicked, good things will happen to them. And therefore, here's your answer. Four kinds of people... And therefore, they're treated in four different ways. Now, the answer is kind of puzzling. Why? Because if you have a righteous person, maybe they're not completely righteous, but they're they're generally righteous. Well, then they're better, they're more righteous than someone who's wicked. Yet, the Almighty tells Moses here, if someone is righteous but only partially righteous, not completely righteous, bad things are going to happen to them. Where if someone is wicked, but they're not fully wicked, but they're wicked, good things will happen to them. Which one of those two people is more righteous? The righteous one is more righteous than the wicked one. So doesn't it make sense that they should be treated better than the wicked person? That's the, that's the question. And the answer is like this. This is the answer that uh, all the commentaries, they all agree on this. If someone is righteous, they're generally righteous. In aggregate, they're righteous. On balance, they're righteous. But they have a few sins. Those sins need to be accounted for. And therefore, they have to be punished. And therefore, where are they going to be punished? Bad things are going to happen to them. And the result of that is that in Olam the righteous people who are only partially righteous, they're going to have their sins expiated. They're going to be atoned for their sins and they'll have Olam No problems. If there's a wicked person, generally the wicked, in aggregate they're wicked, unbalanced they're wicked, but they have, they're have they not completely wicked, they have some mitzvos. Those mitzvos need to be accounted for. They have to be rewarded for those mitzvos. Where are they going to be rewarded for the mitzvos? Here. And therefore, their wickedness can be addressed fully in Olam Haba. That's the answer that we see here in the Talmud. Every mitzvah, every sin must be rewarded or punished. Guaranteed. However, the venue of reward and punishment depends. The righteous, they are punished here, and they're rewarded in Al-Mabah. The wicked, they're awarded here, and they are punished in Almabah. That's the answer the Talmud says in the book of Brachos on page 7A. This is repeated several other places in the Talmud. For example, in the book of Kiddushin, on page 40b, we see the exact same answer, the exact same explanation, says the Talmud. The righteous are compared to a tree that's almost entirely in a pure location, but part of its shade, part of its branches, it stand a little bit into impurity. So you cut off those branches that are a little bit impure, but the whole the whole tree now becomes pure. Whereas the righteous, whereas the wicked. They're the opposite. They're like a tree that's entirely in an impure place and it has a little bit of its shade, a little bit of its branches. They go into a pure place and those are also cut off. And the idea is, is that people are going to be rounded off to, to what they are most. If someone is mostly righteous, then they're going to be made completely righteous by having their sins shaved off of them, so to speak. And if someone is mostly wicked, they're going to have the mitzvos removed to make them mostly, to make them wicked and therefore the mitzvot of the righteous are rewarded on Mabah, but the sins are punished over here and vice versa for the wicked. That's the breakdown that we see in the Talmud. And then there's an amazing story to go alongside this framework. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Eliezer, was one of the great sages of the Mishnah era, he was on his deathbed and he was visited by his students. And he was in agonizing pain because of his illness. And when the students entered, they were so moved by this. And then he tells them, the Almighty is so angry at the world because he's treating me like this. And everyone starts crying. They're so moved by this spectacle. They can't, they can't help themselves. They start crying with the exception of one of his students. And, of course, that is Rabbi Akiva. He starts laughing. You see the rabbi writhing in pain. And Rabbi Akiva, one of the students, of course, the, the the greatest sage of the next era, he finds this hilarious. He's so excited. How could you be excited by the pain, by the suffering, by the torment of the rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, who is in pain? So they say to him, well, why are you laughing? It seems wholly inappropriate. So Rabbi Kiva responds, well, why are you crying? What you're saying is inappropriate. Your, your emotion is inappropriate. The rabbi's in pain. You're supposed to be laughing, right? He says, no, no, no. Crying is, is very much appropriate. After all, Rabbi Eliezer, he's like a Torah stroll. And a Torah scroll's in pain. How could you do anything but cry? So he responds, oh, that's exactly why I'm laughing. Because his whole life, Rabbi Eliezer, everything that happened to him was good. His crops never failed. His wine never became vinegar. His honey never spoiled. His flesh was never smitten. These were always good for him. And I was worried that maybe his comparatively few sins were never addressed. And they were never dressed in this world, and he gets to Omaba, he's have to dress them there. Now that I see that he is suffering, I know that his lot, his portion, Omaba, is untainted. And that's why I'm so happy, I'm so delighted. And Rabbi Eliezer overhears this and he says, Wait a minute, aren't you implying that I have some sins I need to atone for? So, Abraham tells them, well, Rabbi Eliezer, you, you yourself taught us there's no righteous person in the land that does good but doesn't sin. And therefore, everyone has some sin. And even you have some sin. And therefore, the fact that you're being punished here, that ensures that your portion of Abba is untainted. So again, the same sort of idea. The righteous are suffering here. It's a way to cleanse them from the sins, the comparatively few sins, those small branches that are veering over to the side of impurity shave them off, remove those branches, and that way the totality of them is righteous. Now, there's a third teaching in the Talmud, I think, that really gives a deeper insight into this breakdown. And I think it's important for us to kind of really understand what the message here is because I think this is the last cog in understanding this perspective. It's a little bit confusing, so we have to kind of pay attention. The Talmud in the book of Ta'anit on page 11a reinforces this attitude, this ideal, but it presents it a little bit differently or with a different verbiage that seems to be kind of confusing. I'll explain what I mean. The Talmud quotes the verse in the end of Deuteronomy. El emuna ve'ein avel. A God of faith without iniquity. God is someone you can rely on. He's not, he's totally fair and there's nothing unfair about him. What does that mean? Says the Talmud, Elimuna, a God who is fair, who has, has you can have faith in. What does that mean? That tells you that just as the punishment is exacted in Olam Haba, in the spiritual, in the afterlife, from the wicked, even for a minor sin, so too punishment is exacted from the righteous in this world, even from a minor sin. God's fair, God's trustworthy, everyone's treated fairly. If a tzaddik, a righteous person, does even a minor sin, they have to be punished for it, just as a wicked person is punished for it. The only difference being, wicked is punished all the Righteous is punished here. Without iniquity, God is not unfair. What does that mean? Just as the righteous are rewarded, even for a minor sin, you know, all above, so to the wicked are rewarded even for a minor sin here. That's what the Talmud says. God's fair and God is not unfair. Everyone is treated equally. The righteous don't have any protexia, as they say in Hebrew. They they don't have any way to avoid punishment and payment for their sins. Even a minor sin, they have to pay for it. The only difference is they pay for it over here. Just like the wicked, they pay for it there, but everyone's treated fairly. And you do a mitzvah. You do a minor mitzvah. Even that's not ignored. Even that's not ignored. Everyone is treated fairly. That's the message of the Talmud. So we say God is good, and we say God is fair, and this system is a fair system. That's what the Talmud says. The problem is that the breakdown seems to be wholly inequitable. Why? Because our sages tell us, that one second of reward in um, outweighs all the pleasure in this world. Consequently, you have a wicked person who does a minor mitzvah. You have a righteous person who does the exact same minor mitzvah. The reward should be the same. Yet, the Talmud says God's fair, right? God rewards them both. The only difference is that God rewards the wicked here and God rewards the righteous in Allah. Um, it's fair! Is that fair? After all, if two people, one righteous, one wicked, do the identical mitzvah, says the Talmud, the wicked are paid in pesos in this world. The righteous are paid in kilos of gold in the next world. How could that be fair? How could it be two people do the identical mitzvah and the Talmud in trying to justify the fairness of the system... Describes a very unfair system. Because the same mitzvah, the wicked are rewarded for the, over here, the righteous are rewarded for it in Almaba when the reward is amplified. One second of Almaba outweighs all of this world. How could the Talmud say this this proves God's fairness when the very architecture of the system is unfair? The same mitzvah is inequitably rewarded for the righteous in Almaba vis-a-vis the wicked over here. There's a very, very deep insight into understanding this. And that is that God is not only fair in ensuring that everyone gets paid for the mitzvahs and everyone gets punished for their sins, but God is even fair to let the people choose the denominations of their payment and of their reward. If you do a mitzvah, any mitzvah, the most minor of mitzvahs, you will be paid by God. He's fair. Moreover, he'll let you choose how you want to get paid. Do you want a check? Do you want a direct deposit? Do you want pesos? Do you want gold? You choose. Do you want to be rewarded here cheaply? Do you want to be rewarded in omaba? Ba? Meaning the righteous and the wicked, they choose which world they want to be rewarded in. The righteous is someone who says, I want to prioritize my life. I want to optimize for Allah. Baba. Ergo, the message he's sending to God is, I don't want to be paid off cheap. I don't want to have my mitzvahs paid off over here. I want my reward to be in Allah. Baba. And God's fair. He says, okay, you want to be rewarded there. You want to be punished here. Granted, you prioritize that world. You deprioritize this world. Therefore, in the world that you deprioritize, you'll get punished. In the world that you prioritize, You'll get rewarded. The wicked is someone who has the exact opposite perspective. They prioritize this world and they deprioritize the next world. In effect, they're asking God, please reward me here. Please punish me there. And that too is granted. Thus, in effect, not only the system is fair, but it's doubly fair because God will reward and punish, punish everyone in the world that they choose to be rewarded in, in the world that they choose to be punished in. And with that, I want to add another little bow to this idea. We're told in the Mishnah, in Pirkei Avos in chapter 4, Mishnah number 21, the following pithy statement. Envy, lust, and honor remove a person from the world. Kina. Envy, lust, and honor remove a person from the world. What does this mean? The baseline interpretation is that if someone has envy, lust, and honor, they cannot function in a normal society. They're removed from the world. That's a simple understanding. But I think that what it's telling us is as follows. When someone has envy... What kind of envy is it? Is it envy of spiritual things or envy of physical things, material things? Envy is only when it's envy of material things. In effect, when someone is envious, what are they saying? They're saying material, physical things are desirable to me. And they're telling God, where do I want to get rewarded? I want to get rewarded over here. You get removed from the world. Which world? From all By choosing to get paid here, you're you're removing yourself, blah, blah, blah. Lust, pursuit of physical, material pleasures, i.e., I want to be rewarded here. Honor, I do a mitzvah, give me honor, pay me here. Those are the characteristics that a person can choose, if, if they have it, to exhibit the desired location of their reward. But by doing them, you're choosing to be rewarded here. Ergo, you're telling God, I want to be rewarded here not there, and then you're going to be removed from the next world because you're, you're asking to be paid in pesos and not to be paid in kilos of of gold. These qualities, they demonstrate that a person is yearning for reward in this world and foregoing reward in the spiritual world. In effect, you're prioritizing this world over the next world and therefore you're saying, I want reward here and I want punishment there and God in his fairness, in his magnanimity, in his goodness says, okay, is that what you want? That's exactly what you get. I want to do a little bit of a callback to last time. We quoted the Talmud in the book of Menachos on page 29b that described a conversation between Moses and God. When Moses went up to heaven, they got the Torah. Moses saw God making crowns above the letters and says, why are you making the crowns? And he says, well, Rabbi Kiva is going to study not just the words and not just the letters, but also the crowns above the letters. Wow, so impressed. Let me go see him. He goes to see him. Give the Torah via him. God says, no, I'm not going to give you the Torah via him. Oh, you showed me his Torah, Show me his reward. And again, Moses is transported to the future and he sees Robert Heva's grisly death. And one of the questions that we asked when we studied that piece of Talmud is that Moses made a request and God does not seem to be showing him, to be exhibiting him what he asked for. Moses told God, you showed me his Torah, now show me his reward. And where does God bring Moses? Not to Olam Abba where Rabbi is having his reward, but to Rabbi Akiva's very macabre and brutal death. Moses asked to see the reward. Instead, he sees his punishment, his suffering. Why doesn't God answer the question that Moses asked? And in fact, Moses doesn't get it. Zu Torah, Vazuz this is Torah, this is, this is the reward. I have to see the reward. To, you don't get it. You don't, you don't understand. Quiet. You don't understand. This is the reward. Maybe Rabbi Kiva himself can help us answer this question. When his teacher, Rabbi Lazar is, is dying and is in terrible agony. So maybe there's three emotions that you could have. You could have the emotion of the majority of the students. They're crying. It's terrible. You could have, you could be maybe ambivalent about it. You could say, well, he's suffering, but maybe it's good. And therefore, it's hard for me to kind of balance this. We could just be neutral. What does Rebbe Kiva do? He starts laughing as if it's the most delightful thing. he would be dancing. He's joyous in it. Maybe this is the secret the insight to understand how God indeed showed Moses Rabbi Akiva's reward when he showed him Rabbi Akiva's suffering. Rabbi Akiva himself is telling us there is no greater reward than to have your comparatively minor sins expunged from the record in a cheap way in this world. There's nothing greater than to have those minor imperfections, those branches that extend over to the dark side, so to speak, to have those cut off and to preserve the entirety of who you are, perfect, bereft of any sins, cleansed from any imperfections, all blemishes removed. In effect, God did show Moses Robert Kiva's reward. It looked to him like suffering, Zu Zuzchara. This is Torah. This is reward. He didn't get it. But Rebekah himself tells us the answer. Yes, this is the reward. He himself is laughing. He's joyous at at the pain, at the suffering of his teacher. He's not neutral about it. He's joyous about it. He, in his view, this is reward for his teacher. He's happy. He's delighted. It's a good thing. Because in that big, big picture, there's nothing greater than to have your sins to have them removed from the record at a very cheap price. They will be removed from the record. The question is, will it be cheaply or will it be very expensively on a much higher level in Olam I want to maybe, if we could kind of elaborate on this point just a little bit. The Talmud tells us, it lists four people that get a straight ticket to Olam The Ramam tells us that the objective of our life here is to be granted access entry to olamba that's that's the whole objective that's as if you could distill your mission in one sentence be allowed entry to olamba and typically that's the product of a whole lifetime of work but the talmud says that there's certain shortcuts there's certain ways you could maybe cut the line there's certain ways you could compress a lifetime of work into one act. It's a whole subject. Maybe we'll get into it at some later date. But the Talmud, of the book of Shabbos, page eighty-eight B, shares with us a little bit of an insight, a little bit of a window into how we can be granted entry to Olma in a few specific ways. It lists four things. Number one. Someone who is who is publicly ashamed and doesn't lash back. Someone embarrasses you publicly and you have a lot of meat to respond, to lash out, you keep quiet. That's one way. Similar thing, someone who hears their disgrace doesn't respond. Someone who does mitzvahs out of love. And finally, someone who is joyous in their own suffering. Someone is happy with suffering. Who do we see in history that's happy with suffering? Rabbi Tiva. Not only his suffering, the suffering of his teacher. He was someone who had aligned his perspective to make it as real, he was able to emotionally exhibit the joy, the delight, and the suffering. When Moses asked to see Rabbi Tiva's reward... He shows him suffering because, in Rabbi Kiva's mind, that's that's a reward. Someone like that is someone who has aligned his perspective with Allah. He's already living here with Allah values, and therefore, he is assured a ticket to eternity. There may be one more wrinkle in this discussion. You know, Moses doesn't get it. He's like, This is Torah, this is reward. If we have a hard time understanding the idea of being joyous with suffering, not just, oh, I'll understand. Okay, there's a reason for it. Where do I sign? You know, That's what Abitiva is saying. I'm so happy. I'm so, finally, my my teacher is writhing in pain. Finally. If we have a hard time seeing that and understanding that, we should know that we have good company. It's not just us. Moses is there with us. Maybe even the angels. If we don't understand it, that's by design. Because we're still earthlings and earthlings have a hard time understanding that and to a certain degree Rabbi Kiva was more advanced than Moses just like when Moses goes to his study hall to his lecture hall he doesn't understand it whatever that means we know for sure there is precedent to the notion that Rabbit was at least on some level more advanced than, than Moses at least at that juncture so Moses asked the question God says you don't get it I, I showed you the answer but you didn't understand it don't ask any more questions That's at Sinai. What happens three months later? Three months later, in the aftermath of the golden calf, Moses is on a higher level, and he repeats the same question. And this time, he's given a a different answer, but really, it's the same answer. Why bad things happen to good people? He was asked that question twice. He was given the same answer, identical answer. Show me his Torah. show me his reward. It's the same exact answer that he got. He just, he didn't understand it the first time. And then he understood it the second time. And the reason why is because Moses became became greater. His His perspective of the spiritual reality, it dominated his perspective of the physical reality to a much greater degree three months later in the aftermath of the golden calf. And consequently, this time, it made sense to him. But I think as a consolation for us, we'll be very, very happy to be in the same stratosphere as Moses when he goes up to heaven to argue with angels and to get the Torah. But even at that level, there was a certain degree of understanding that it didn't didn't make sense to him. And that's why we have to resort back to what we quoted earlier from the Ramban, that the suffering of the righteous is something we we won't ever fully understand. The mission that we quoted uh, this time from chapter 4 of of Apirot that we won't really understand not the tranquility of the wicked, not the suffering of the righteous. For us, to the degree that we are still dominated by our physical reality, so to speak, that this is real and the spiritual world is theoretical, it's going to be difficult for us to understand. But the bottom line of all the sources of the Talmud and other sources of Jewish philosophy to answer the overarching question, is God in total control? Yes. Is God good and fair? Yes. How come bad things happen to us? They don't. We don't know it. We don't see it. We can't understand it, but everything that God does is indeed for the best. Sometimes we'll be able to find it in the future. Sometimes it's just nudging us to improve our ways, to rectify our ways, to repent. And sometimes it's a way of cleansing us from sins to preserve the complete reward for all us and therefore, we can't understand it. And it's difficult for us to understand it. And we're acknowledging that we'll never fully, on a sensory level, it never will, will resonate with us. We're in good company with that. But that's the basic framework of this very difficult subject as conveyed to us by our sages in the Talmud. Next time, we're going to move on to principle number three of the 13 principles. Namely, the fact that God is not corporeal, has no body, doesn't behave like a body, and all the descriptions to the contrary are written for us to understand, but not for us to interpret literally.